Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Thank you to the BBA for its continued support of these presentations and to all of the attendees for showing an interest in commercial real estate. Um, also would like to thank the Real Estate Finance Subcommittee for their um, sponsorship of this presentation with the Fundamentals Committee. Uh, we have a really exciting presentation for you today, Basics of a Commercial Real Estate Transaction. I'm going to get started with a few introductions. Uh, my name is Stephanie Faraci. I'm a co-chair of the Fundamentals Subcommittee. I am an associate at Morgan Lewis, and I counsel clients in complex financing, acquisition, disposition, development, and leasing transactions. My co-chair, Jadi Sanchez, is uh, an associate at Golston & Stores, and she provides her clients with valuable assistance in development, permitting, zoning, acquisition, disposition, financing, and related matters. Our first speaker today is Kim Kuduli, who is an associate at Dane Torpy and is a co-chair of the um, Real Estate Finance Subcommittee. She focuses on commercial real estate transactional matters, particularly acquisitions, dispositions, entity formation, and land use, and also has experience with corporate healthcare, environmental law, and estate planning, and probate and land use law. Um, my colleague, Natasha Massey, is an associate at Morgan Lewis, and she also represents investors, lenders, and owners and operators of real estate in regional and national commercial real estate transactions. And she regularly advises on transactions relating to the acquisition, disposition, financing, development, and leasing of multifamily housing, office buildings, industrial complexes, retail centers, and mixed-use projects. Christine DiBiase is an associate at Arendt Fox, and she has broad experience in all aspects of real estate law, including commercial acquisitions and dispositions, financing, leasing, and development of mixed-use residential office and industrial properties. And she also has experience with land use and permitting matters um, and represented clients before municipal and state boards throughout Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And our last speaker, Oriana Montani, is an associate with DLA Piper, and she's also a co-chair of the BBA's Real Estate Finance Subcommittee. And she represents property owners, purchasers, borrowers, and developers in the acquisition, disposition, financing, and development of office and lab properties, multifamily properties, industrial properties, data center properties, self-storage, and mixed-use projects. So thank you to all of our speakers going to turn it over to Jadi, who's going to talk about the agenda at a glance before we get started on the presentation. Good morning, everyone. So um, for today's agenda, we're going to start with um, real estate financing transactions to be covered by our panelist, Kim. Uh, we'll then follow by uh, key loan documents and provisions um, to be um, covered by our panelist, Natasha. We'll also do borrower-specific issues and topics to be covered by our panelist, Christine, and then best practices to be covered by our panelist, Oriana. Um, at the end of our session, we will have an opportunity for questions. However, if questions come up throughout um, the presentation, feel free to use the uh, Q&A function at the bottom to submit your questions. We'll address those at the end. Thank you very much. So with that, I will now turn it over to Kim. 
Hello, all. Um, so I will be discussing real estate financing transactions, um, and we can go into the next slide. So today I am going to give you the 10,000 10, feet um, overview of what commercial real estate financing involves. Um, so I think a good place to always start is to identify who are the parties and what is their role. So when you think of real estate financing, immediately you should think of the borrower and the lender, but there are almost always multiple parties in this transaction. Um, and so there's the borrower, there's the borrower's counsel, there's the lender, the lender's counsel, there's the title insurance company. There's the title insurance underwriting um, for, for the title insurance company. There's guarantors, um, and there might be multiple guarantors in any given transaction. So certainly the place to start is by identifying the parties and understanding what their role is um, in this particular transaction. So generally, in any given transaction, um, you will see you know, a combination of these different um these different parties. And so just starting with the borrower, the borrower's attorney, the lender and the lender's attorney. So what, what is their objective um, and, and who are they? So the borrower is the person asking for money. So their objective or their end goal is to prove to the lender that they are financially solvent and they can repay the debt. The borrower's attorney, it you know, represents the borrower, and it's his or her job to ensure that the borrower can repay its obligations to the lender. And really, um, their job, or you know, his or her job, is to ensure that the borrower understands what the risks and obligations are. Um, and the lender is the one lending the money. So they want to make sure that they are minimizing any risk of loss. And then the lender's attorney wants to ensure um, sort of along the same line, they want to ensure that the risk of non-payment is minimal. So just at a 10,000 foot overview, um, walking into any commercial real estate financing transaction, you, you know that there's going to be these four parties, generally these four parties and what their roles are. Um, and so whether or not you're the borrower's counsel or the lender's counsel, your job is ultimately to ensure that the terms are fair and equitable for all of the, the parties. So if you're representing the borrower and um, the borrower is asking for a million dollars and it's being secured by a commercial real estate building that's worth two million dollars, well, that's that's you know, uh under normal circumstances, that's sort of a fair and equitable transaction. Now, let's say the bank says, you know what, on top of this million dollar mortgage that we're putting on your building, um, we also want an interest in your grandmother's antique wedding ring that's been passed down for multiple generations. Well, as a borrower's uh, attorney, I would probably take a step back and say, wait a second, that doesn't seem typical or fair or equitable um, in this transaction. So, you know, I would probably push back on that point. And obviously, this is an extreme example, but it's it's really our jobs to ensure that um, the benefit of the bargain between the parties is fair and equitable and reasonable. And so after you've identified who the parties are and what their objectives are, you you really need to dig in deeper and um, ask, well, 
who are the parties? Are they, you know, is the borrower an individual, a LLC, a corporation, a nonprofit? Is the lender a small credit union, a large international bank, a private lender? Is this transaction sort of a one-off between family members? Or, um, you know, just asking this information will inform how you approach this transaction. So you take a step back um, and you say, who are the parties to the transaction? What is their objective and what are their roles? And, and who are they? Are they an individual entity, public, private, small institution, large institution? Because this information is going to provide sort of the framework for the transaction. It'll help you understand um, what the other side is thinking. For instance, if you're a borrower's counsel and you're negotiating with a small um, local bank, their assessment of what is reasonable and their assessment of risk tolerance might be a little bit different from a national or international um, lending institution. So really just situate yourself in this framework of who are the parties, what is their role, how do you best represent your client, and sort of taking all of the information together um, to, to best advise your client. So we can go to the next slide. Um, once you've identified who the parties are, you want to make sure that you've oriented yourself in this particular transaction. So you know that there's a borrower borrowing money, there's a lender lending money, and those, you know, those funds are being exchanged for certain um rights and obligations. And so what what your next step is to, is to figure out what kind of loan is this? Um, is this a term loan, which is a loan for a fixed amount of time? Um, is there a fixed interest rate? Maybe um, this is a benchmark rate where the interest rate will change based on certain external factors at some future point in time. You know, is this a bridge loan, which is a loan to sort of bridge the gap in financing um, the acquisition of a property? Um, in other words, you know, is this a short-term loan until the borrower can secure um, other financing? Maybe this is a construction loan. And so this is a loan to finance the costs of construction associated with um, renovating a property. Or, you know, is this a hard money loan with a private company or a private individual rather than a banking institution. Maybe this is a line of credit secured by the borrower's business assets. And so once you've established who the parties are and what everyone's objectives is, you, you need to understand the particulars of this transaction. And so you ask yourself, what kind of loan is this? What are the terms of the loan? Um, what is the risk to my client? Um, what is the repayment of debt secured by? Is it secured by the real property, the business assets, other collateral, maybe a combination of real and personal property? Um, and you want to make sure that you ask questions to understand the loan and the loan terms, um, the repayment agreement and the and how the um, repayment of the debt is, is structured. So in general, this is what the life cycle of um, the financing uh, looks like. And so it starts with a borrower and a lender. A borrower identifies a lender. And then sort of the next step is the parties are negotiating the terms of the loan. 
And so they memorialize that generally in a term sheet. So you you also have to think about the parties. If this is a, a private lender, you know, there might not be a formal term sheet listing out all of the terms of the transaction. There might just be an email saying, this is what we agreed to, you know, let's, let's draft that. Or, um, you know, if you're working with a national or international lender, then, you know, generally there's a term sheet which lists out um, all of the um, agreed upon terms between the parties. And so, you know, after there's this this agreement between the borrower and the lender as to what the loan will look like, there's sort of we move on to the next step, which is the closing agenda. Um, and the closing agenda is really a document and can be drafted internally, but usually the lender's counsel puts forth a closing agenda and it will say, this is the obligation of the parties. Um, the lender's counsel will provide this. The borrower's counsel will provide this. The borrower needs to provide this. And we need all of this information in order to evaluate whether or not this transaction can move forward. And so during this, you know, this would be if it's parallel to a closing um, or the acquisition of a property, this would be sort of the due diligence phase of the transaction. So um, here we typically see the lender, um, the lender's counsel providing loan documents for review and negotiation. And we typically see the borrower's counsel perhaps providing authority documents for the borrower or drafting a legal and enforceability opinion um, for the borrower. And so these things are being exchanged during this phase to make sure that um, this loan is feasible for all of the parties. And so sort of the next step is the closing, which we think of as the exchange of money or funds um, in in exchange um, for the borrower getting the money, the lender wants their debt or the repayment of the debt secured um, with a um, security interest. And so most typically we see this as a mortgage and you think of the mortgage sort of securing the, the promise to pay um, or the, prom the promise to repay the debt. And so then after this happens, we sort of think of this as the end of the transaction, but there's always a next step, which is the post-closing requirements and obligations. And so even though um, this is, you know, the, the money has been exchanged, all the parties are happy, you have to think of the next step. So for instance, if this was a construction loan, um, there might be additional draws um, or requests for funds after the closing. Well, you know, as a borrower's counsel, you might want to ask the question, well, what does the lender need from the borrower um, to, to issue those future funds? Um, does it need mechanics lien waivers? Does it need um, invoices? Does it need title updates? Does it need certification? Does it need financial documents from the borrower? And so this might all happen after, you know, you've closed this transaction. And so you want to think, well, what else does my client um, need to provide or, or need? And then um, you also need to remember that even after this transaction is closed, the borrower 
um, and the lender have both simultaneously made certain representation and warranties in the loan documents. And so what are those representation and warranties and will they remain true and accurate? Because if you are defaulting on any of the terms of those um representation or warranties or, or any agreements that you've agreed upon in the loan documents, then sort of you're um, defaulting under the terms of the loan. And so that may be problematic. And so you want to raise these issues and just sort of remind your client, well, you have the funds, but you also have requirements and obligations after the closing. Hi, everyone. Um, I will be going through the key loan documents and provisions. Starting with, you can go to the next slide. Thank you. Um, some of the key loan documents are the term sheet, loan agreement, promissory note, deed of trust or mortgage, a guarantee, environmental indemnity agreement, and an assignment subordination of the management agreement. I'll go through each one of these documents um, more specifically. Starting with the term sheet, although it's not a loan document, the term sheet establishes the primary specific terms and conditions of the proposed financing. It's an opportunity for the parties to ensure that they're in basic agreement with respect to key terms, such as the loan amount, repayment terms, interest rate, loan term, collateral requirements, guarantee requirements, covenants, and any fees associated with the loan. This commitment letter normally fleshes out any issues or misunderstandings between the parties prior to the preparation of the ultimate loan documents. The loan agreement is really the document that outlines the terms between the borrower and the lender. It covers the loan amount, interest rate, repayment schedule, collateral details, default consequences, and any other conditions for the property backs loan. I'll go through um, some of the heavily negotiated provisions in a loan agreement, starting with prepayment provisions. Such provisions outline the terms under which the borrower can pay off the loan before its scheduled maturity date. It typically includes details on any prepayment penalties or fees that may apply and helps define the conditions and process for early repayment. This may include um, any notice periods, so how far in advance the, mar the borrower would have to notify the lender of the upcoming prepayment, and timing. The loan document may um, say that a borrower may prepay only a particular day of the month, and the, len the lender would not need to accept a prepayment on any other day or can collect interest through the next payment date if the borrower prepays on a day that's not a payment date. Another key provision is um, the reporting requirements. This specifies the financial and, and operational information that the borrower must provide to the lender at regular intervals. It may include financial statements, rent rolls, property inspections, and other data relevant to the loan. These requirements help the lender monitor the borrower's financial health and the performance of the underlying property. Late payment provisions are also normally negotiated as they outline whether there's a late charge um, or default interest as remedies to lenders for late payments. 
a late charge is normally a percentage of the um, loan payment, and a default interest is an interest at a rate above the contract rate. Property management provisions um, are also negotiated in a loan agreement. To back up a little, property management agreement is an agreement between the borrower, who's the owner, typically the owner of the property, and a property manager. Um, and it establishes how a property is managed. So the loan document will typically prevent borrower from changing the management of the mortgage property without lender's consent. Conversely, the documents may also require a change in management if certain circumstances occur. The borrower may want the lender to agree to pre-approve certain possible alternative managers or a conversion to self-management. The borrower may also want to trim back the lender's ability to acquire a change of management, particularly if the manager is an affiliate of the borrower. Um, Kim mentioned construction loans. So in a construction loan, distribution provisions um, are key to the loan agreement. Uh, the loan documents may prohibit the borrower from distributing available cash to its owners until the borrower satisfies certain conditions relating to progress of construction and payments. Before agreeing to any such provisions, the borrower should consider whether its equity investors are counting on distributions as the sort to make required payments. Other key provisions are with respect to defaults and cure periods. Loan documents usually let a lender exercise its rights and remedies against the borrower only if an event of default has occurred. If the borrower is merely in the fault, but the facts have not yet risen to an event of the fault, a borrower will not want the lender to have the right to exercise remedies. In any event, a borrower should assume that as soon as an event of default occurs, the lender will try to exercise its various rights and remedies under the loan documents and applicable law. Therefore, the definition of event of defaults, default matters a great deal. Um, the following, there's two battlegrounds normally in defining an event of default. Um, that's notice requirements and cure periods. Notice requirements um, are before an event of default can become an event of default, the borrower will want to receive notice of the problem and an opportunity to cure it. Lenders will typically agree to give such notice, except regularly scheduled payments of principal and interest and the payment due on the maturity date. A lender will recognize that if the borrower is in bankruptcy, then any notice of the borrower would probably violate bankruptcy law and therefore the lender will insist on the right to give notice to any guarantor of the loan instead. Cure periods, um, once a borrower receives notice, or once a default has occurred, if the lender has not agreed to give notice of default, the borrower will want some time in which to try to cure the default. For monetary defaults, the cure period will typically be between five to 10 business days. Um, and for non-monetary defaults, the cure periods is usually tip 30 days uh, with a right to extend due to certain circumstances. Another important um, loan document is the promissory note. And this is a document that outlines the 
borrowers promise to repay a specific amount of money to the lender. It includes details such as the loan amount, interest rate, repayment terms, and any applicable late penalties or fees. The promissory note serves as evidence of the debt and the borrower's commitment to repay, providing a legal framework for the transaction. Another important loan document is the mortgage, or depending on the state you're in, um, the deed of trust. It's the document under which the borrower, who's typically the owner of the property, pledges a property collateral as collateral for a loan. The mortgage outlines the loan amount, interest rate, repayment terms, and conditions for the transfer of the property title. If the borrower fails to repay the lender, um, the lender has the right under the mortgage to foreclose on the property, selling it to recover the outstanding debt. So the mortgage serves as security for the loan. Another important document is the guarantee. And this is a document where a third party, and it can be either um, an individual or an entity, agrees to be responsible for the obligations of the borrower in case of default. The guarantor pledges to repay the loan if the borrower fails to meet the terms of the loan agreement. This provides an additional layer of financial assurance for the lender. The guarantee helps mitigate the lender's risk by securing a commitment from a financially responsible party beyond the primary borrower. Another document is the Environmental Indemnity Agreement, and this is an agreement where one party agrees to indemnify and hold another party harmless from environmental liabilities associated with the property. This agreement often arises when there's a potential environmental risk and it outlines the responsibilities for addressing contamination issues or complying with environmental laws. The indemnitor, indemnitor cover, agrees to cover costs, damages, or losses related to environmental matters, offering protection to the indemnity in the transaction. Going back to the management agreement, the lender will often require an assignment and subordination of such management agreement. Um, this is a document where the borrower assigns the rights and obligations of the property management agreement to the lender and agrees to subordinate these rights to the lender's interest. This serves as an additional collateral security for the loan since the borrower transfers their right to the property management agreement to the lender and such transfer becomes an assignment at lender's option in the event um, of default under the loan documents. Thank you. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Christine Denise. I'll be covering borrower-specific issues and topics in this presentation. Um, so we can move to the next slide. First slide, rather. Um, so I know um, that Kim touched on this in the beginning of the presentation. I really wanted to um, start by um, discussing really the frame of mind when we first start reviewing these documents um, because it's, it's really important. Right? So when, before you start reviewing all the documents, um, you should ask you should ask yourself, right? Who who is your client and what business are they operating in? Um, for example, if owning and if your client owns and operates like, apartment buildings. Um, when you review loan documents, we want to make sure that there are no restrictions or uh, no restrictions um, that would 
would uh, hurt your client if they were to, you know, uh, in their normal business, be able to lease to different tenants um, or overly burdensome requirements that would um, impact. I apologize for interrupting, um, but could you move closer to the mic? Oh, I'm sorry. Can you not can you hear me? We were having a little bit of trouble hearing you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so I, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Much better. Thank you. Okay. So um, uh, just, to, just to recap on that, uh, it's really asking yourself, who is your client and making sure you're uh, in the right mindset to be able to spot issues in the loan documents that would ultimately affect the business and what they're trying to do. Um, you know, you want to ask yourself, what are the, your client's goals for the property during the term of the loan? If your client's developing the property, you know, you want to make sure that there aren't restrictions that, you know, that would prohibit them from making any zoning changes or alterations to the, to the building. Um, and you'll, you also want to be able to, you also want to try to be able to get as much proof in the loan documents so that you don't have to continuously go to the lender each time uh, you need approval for something. And I'll, I'll cover this as we, as we get into it. But my, my point is, is that it's really important to, um, you know, have a frame of mind of who your client is uh, before jumping into the loan documents. Um, so... Um, the, the next thing you want to do to uh, off, the, off that is to look at your term sheet, uh, review what uh, the, the party, the, the lender and the borrower have agreed to, your client have agreed to, and then uh, confirm that all of those terms are reflected in the loan documents. Um, you can go to the next slide. Okay, um, so I'm going to uh, to take what I consider the, the most heavily negotiated um, loan documents and uh, go through what are common issues for borrower and how you should approach them. So we'll start off with the loan agreement. Um, so in the loan agreement, you'll see that there's gonna be a, a section that covers what's called representation and warranties. And a representation is, is an assertion of that um, in, you know that that assertion needs to be made true on the, the date that that assertion is made, and sometimes it continues through a warranty, uh, which is a promise to indemnify if the assertion turns out ultimately to be false. So the bottom line is that it is difficult and at times near impossible to provide an absolute assurance on some lender requirements and warranties. So you'll want to limit the scope of the assertion to ideally borrower's actual knowledge, meaning the borrower's conscious awareness without any additional duty to investigate. So what does that mean? I'll provide an example. The, uh, a common representation of warranty uh, in, in a loan agreement can be something like the borrower represents a warrant that the execution and delivery of all loan documents will not be in conflict with or result in a breach of any provision of any existing law or regulation. So without having to go through every single existing law and regulation, which would be near impossible to make sure there's no conflicts, what you would do is you would add what we call knowledge qualifiers. So you would say to borrower's knowledge, execution and delivery of documents will not conflict. I provide additional um, uh, examples on the slide um, which I will um, 
I will just quickly touch on. So um, the first example, borrower represents a warrant that is organized, validly existing, and good standing under the laws of their uh, their state of formation. So that one, you know, you might not necessarily need a knowledge qualifier because you're going to be able to get documents that that prove easily that your that that borrower, if it is an entity, is really organized um, and validly validly existing and good standing. Um, the second um, example, bar represent, represents a warrant to bar's actual knowledge that improvements on the property, property are structurally sound, in good repair, and free of defects. Um, and then the third, bar represents a warrant that the borrower's performance of obligations of their loan documents are not in contradiction in terms of any material agreement for which it is a party or by which it it or any of its properties bound. Um, so we'll get into materiality qualifiers. That's another um, another way of looking at the scope of representations and warranties for your client. Um, so the next, um, uh, another section in a loan agreement that you want to pay attention to is covenants. There's both affirmative and negative covenants, um, and that is, um, uh, you know, so, that's basically what the borrower can and cannot do during the term of the loan. Um, so similar to representation warranties, um, there are times when covenants can be overly burdensome um, to comply with. And so you'll want to limit scope by adding what I just referred to as materiality qualifiers. So for example, um, uh, there, you know, a common covenant is borrower covenants to give written notice to lender of any proceedings. Um, so if there's any you know, legal action that's against the borrower, uh, any notices that, that come up during the term of the loan, um, you'll, you, the lender wants to know about those actions. So you typically want to add, uh, you know, any, we'll, we'll notify you lender of any, any um, action that's, that caused a material adverse effect on the property. Um, so on your screen on the presentation, I have a couple more uh, examples. Um, borrower covenants agrees that will comply with all material laws, ordinance, rules, and regulations, protection of property. Um, you know, borrower doesn't really, I'm sorry, the, the lender doesn't really care if if the borrower gets a minor citation um, from, from the municipality for saving and clear snow. What they care about is whether there's environmental hazards or taxes. So anything like that that material um, they would want to know. So you'd want to limit uh, these covenants to um, to, to the really uh, important things so your client doesn't have to continuously make sure they're not it's in default of the loan. Um, okay, I'm going to move to uh, the next um, provision, which is typically, typically negotiated um, and that has to do with cash reserves. So cash reserves are, uh, is another way of just saying a, a rainy fund. Um, sometimes lenders require borrowers to put up a, a certain amount of cash to cover uh, taxes or capital payments. Essentially, assurance for the lender that there is going to be funds on hand um, to, you know, in case something happens and, and lenders and borrower needs to pay. Um, you know, I typically try to limit these uh, cash reserves either in the amount or um, having them at all. Um, 
Um, it really just depends on on the situation, but it's something to to consider looking at um, if your client doesn't need to have all the, um, the all funds up front like that. Um, so prepayment penalties. I know that was just covered on the presentation prior, um, but that is also one you want to pay attention to, especially if you know your client is looking to either refinance or plans to pay off loans sooner than the maturity date. You'll want to, you know, make make sure your client has is in a good position to not have to pay an extraordinary extraordinary um, prepayment penalty fee. Um, and again, that just means that um, if a pre, if you want to pay off um, the loan prior to the maturity date, um, sometimes lenders require a, a, a fee. It's just looking out of that. Financial reporting obligations. You'll see in a loan agreement that there's a there's a section that has to do with certain obligations on borrower each year by to provide financials, and that's really so lender can make sure that borrower's meeting its its um you know it, its its covenants and its, its financial covenants. Um, so, for example, a typical provision you'll see that borrower within 120 days after end of each fiscal year, borrower has to provide a, a federal tax income certified by a, a public accountant. Um, you know, you could try to limit these, uh, limit the amount of financial reporting. That really just depends on, you know, what the, you know, have a, have a conversation with a typical for the lender. But the goal is really to make your client aware of reporting requirements and confirm that they can, they can meet them. Um, Transfer transfer rights. Um, this is uh, another big one um, that you'll want to pay attention to. So, oftentimes, if you have a client who, I'll, in this for this for purposes of this presentation, is a, an entity um, and it is a limited liability company, um, oftentimes you'll see a covenant in the in a, in a loan agreement that prohibits the borrower entity from transferring any membership interests. If you know that your client um, has certain, um, um, you know, estate planning goals or anything that might, you know, they might need to transfer a certain amount of membership interests, you want to pay attention to this provision and a way to um, to carve out the ability the ability to have limited transfer rights is to uh, add in what is commonly known as a limited transfer uh, provision. And that reads as, uh, for example, borrower shall um, uh, be able to uh, transfer any stock membership interest by current members to a trust for the benefit of an immediate family member of the transferee or the beneficiaries of such trust. So, um, and then another example too is, you know, you know if, if you're dealing with a sole membership LLC, if the sole member, um, you know, is, is an individual, a natural person, and they, you know, unfortunately that's why you don't want an immediate um, event of default if you can transfer the membership interest um, um, to, to someone else who's another natural um, person. The default a lot. Um, so um, that is one provision you want to pay attention to. Another, um, the last section with respect to the loan agreement that I'll, um, I'll touch on is the event of defaults. I know that this was discussed in terms of 
what are the default is in, in, in cure periods. I'll just um, bolster the point that you'll want to pay attention um, to to whether there are notice of cure periods, and if not, you want to make sure you add those in. And why that's important is because you know ultimately, practically, things happen, right? There might be a time when um, you're not, you know, your client uh, didn't make their loan payment right on the first of the month. You know, sometimes people forget, or what, whatever might have you. You want to have, uh, you know, an ability to to be notified of the fact they didn't pay. And that they have a certain amount of time to to cure before there is uh, the, the lender calls or the benefit default. Um, um, another thing too, uh, just in terms of, uh, of remedies after a benefit default, um, you want you want to. I, I suggest paying attention to whether the, the loan agreement has any cross default or cross collateralization. If that's not a term that's um, negotiated as part of the term sheet, it's something you want to pay attention to. You know, if your if your client has other loans with this particular lender, sometimes lenders add in provisions where uh, if they default under that other loan agreement, it's an automatic default under this loan. Um, so uh, you know, you try to limit each each individual deal um, and, and 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 protect uh, you know, so it's not it's not cross uh, default. Okay, um, next slide, please. Um, so I'll touch on the mortgage and uh, an assignment of the rents. Um, by the first thing you want to do is just confirm the collateral is correct. Sometimes there's issues um, that can arise with the description of collateral and that's So that you'll want to confirm. Um, and then uh, you'll want to confirm that the uh, events of default and covenants are consistent with the loan agreement. You'll see in mortgages and ALRs, there's you know another section that includes events of defaults and, and, and covenants. I typically try to make sure they're consistent um, and not uh, and there's not excessive covenants. Um, with respect to uh, the guarantee, um, this is another uh, document you'll you'll want to pay close attention to um, and make sure that your whoever the guarantor is under the loan or guarantee guarantors that they're um, that they're aware of their risks and liability. Um, there's generally there's what's called a full recourse, non-recourse, or a limited recourse guarantee. Uh, just briefly, a full recourse um, allows if the borrower defaults, it allows the lender to go after all assets of the guarantor. Non-recourse if the borrower defaults, lender can only foreclose on the collateral. Um, and then a limited recourse or bad or what's other other uh, what's called bad way carve outs the middle ground it's a guarantee with that um, is is limited to damages and liability resulting from certain actions um, before it becomes full recourse so you know if it's usually if, if, if the borrower commits fraud or misappropriates funds that's when um, the guarantor will down for, for uh, the full recourse. Um, so you'll um, you want to make sure that um, before the guarantor the guarantee is um, called on, you'll want to make sure that those secure periods have expired under the borrower's uh, loan agreement. 
And uh, oftentimes there's also financial reporting requirements of the guarantor. So you just want to pay attention to those, make sure that you are, um, you know, that they're providing the same as the borrower and that there's nothing in it that's um, overly burdensome for the guarantor that they're able to meet their financial reporting uh, requirements. And then lastly, the environmental indemnity, the, you know, this, this document um, uh, requires the borrower and guarantor at times to identify the lender for any environmental conditions on the, on the property. Um, a typical negotiating um, uh, point here is to uh, is to limit the indemnity um, by adding what's called the sunset provision, and that means that uh, oftentimes environmental indemnity off the bat is it doesn't um, doesn't expire even after the term of the loan expires or the loan is repaid. So um, by adding a sunset provision, your um, adding in that the indemnity will terminate after a certain amount of time after so you're not the borrower is not always on the, the hook um, forever for any uh, for anything on the property um, and have to identify the letter from them. Um, so I, I moved kind of quick um, at you know towards the end here because I know we're running out of time, but I'm happy to answer any questions if anything was unclear. Hi everyone, I'm Oriana Montani. I'm an associate at DLA Piper, and I'm going to talk to you about just some best practices in financing transactions. Um, Stephanie, can you move to thank you? So you all have just received a really good primer on loan documents and the substance of the loan documents. The best practices I'm going to focus on are really geared toward the flow of the deal, which is really important on financing transactions. Um, oftentimes your client on the borrower side and on the lender side will come to you and say, you know, we want to close this financing in X period of time. And it's almost always a very truncated period of time. So the flow of the deal is crucial and it's really in the lawyer's hands on both sides to keep things moving quickly where we can. So the first piece of a financing transaction is going to be the lender's checklist. Um, the lender usually sends this to you right at the outset with an invitation for a kickoff call or something to that effect. And the checklist is vital to the financing transaction. It's going to be the checklist that everybody is working off of. So the lender, the lender's counsel, the borrower, the borrower's counsel, everyone's gonna be working off of this checklist and it's going to detail um, all of the loan documents, all of the diligence uh, materials that the lender is going to need, all of the organizational documents the lender will need to look at, any searches the lender needs, opinions the lender is going to require, um, and any property documentation, etc. So this is a really, really important um, piece of a financing transaction. As the borrower's counsel it's really important to keep the things on the checklist moving where you can. And this is going to be managing third parties, managing your client, and then of course, managing your own work. Um, with respect to the checklist, often what I will do when I get a checklist in 
is I look at it and I think, what do I already have? So if it's a financing and connection with an acquisition, then, well, I, I might already have closing documents. Or um, if it's a financing that's soon after an acquisition, the checklist might include all of the closing documents from that acquisition. So I might already have those and I can get those over to the um, lender quickly. Same with a survey. Usually you already have a survey. You can get that over to lenders council quickly. Um, the lenders council will normally have some of their own requirements like title and survey requirements and um, organizational authority requ specific requirements. I I always try to ask the lender as soon as possible, you know, what are your title and survey requirements? They usually have a summary they can send you and you can provide that to the title company and the surveyor right off the bat. Um, so the, the key here is really just to jump on these things and keep them moving as best you can right from the outset. Don't be the person who's sitting on the lender's checklist. Um, the the next item is often on the checklist, there are a lot of lead time and third party items that you need to focus on. There are a lot of third party reports. We talked about title and survey, environmental reports. Usually your client's going to be the one providing that um, if the title company's not, uh, the lender's not getting it themselves. Um, but you just want to make sure that somebody's dealing with that. Often the, the lender, and this might come on subsequent checklists, but the, they'll require estoppel certificates from certain tenants. Um, they, they may require certain title-related estoppel certificates if there's a declaration or that type of document on title. Um, they may require SNDAs from certain tenants. And then they're going to, and all of these things can take time. A lot of times, um, leases give tenants 30 days to send an estoppel certificate. Um, so again, that's one of those things that even if it's not on the checklist, you want to make sure that you're communicating with the lender's counsel early and often about what they're going to need there. Um, you're going to have to provide lender with certain opinions. If you can't provide them in-house at your firm, you often, for example, for an enforcement opinion, if you're practicing in Boston, but the property is located in Florida, you're going to need an enforcement opinion with respect to the mortgage for under Florida law. So you're going to need local counsel to issue an opinion. And that's another item that you're going to want to get on top of early. Um, any searches that the, that the lender requires, these can take several weeks sometimes. And often the lender doesn't know the universe of searches they're going to need right off the bat because they don't know the entire organizational structure of the borrower. So to the extent that you can get those organizational documents to the lender quickly, they can provide you with a full list of the organizational documents, any additional organizational documents or any searches they're going to need quickly. The one thing I will note about searches is that often lenders want them to be dated within 30 days of closing, and therefore you don't want to order them too early. And so it's sort of a little bit of a dance figuring out when you can order those to give yourself enough time to get them to the lender, but also to not have them become stale. Um, the next 
thing you'll see often on a checklist are know, the lenders know your customer requirements. And oftentimes these are things that the borrow, your actual client is going to have to provide to the lender, but your client might, might not be paying as much attention to these pieces as, um, as they might need to, or they might not realize that these are things they need to deal with. Some of them are things like, you know, a, a photocopy of specific people's driver's licenses, things like that. If if you can just stay in touch with your client on those things, it just makes, you know, crosses them off the checklist quickly. And again, to the extent that you can just get things off the checklist um, as expediently as possible, uh, it's always a good thing. So it's it's good to not just assume that your client is on top of the KYC stuff and just stay in touch with them on that. Um, and, and sometimes actually one, one thing that you can do is go through the checklist and figure out exactly what is in your client's court. And you can do this every so often. So if there are things that are outstanding that you know need to come from your client, it's always a value add. You know, obviously you don't want to nag people, but it's always a value add to say, hey, I went through the checklist. Here are the things that are still in your court to the extent that you aren't already aware of what the status of those things are. Um, so that's another thing you can do just to keep the checklist moving. Um, on the loan document, so I'm now going to move beyond the checklist. Some best practices with loan documents. When your loan documents come in, there are going to be specific provisions that your client always needs to look at. First, the, they're going to need to look at the insurance provisions because they'll need their risk manager or their insurance advisors to look at those and um, give any feedback on those. Second, they'll need to look at the reporting requirements because they're going to need those to work with their internal processes. Um, third, they're going, and this is in the reporting requirements, for example, are going to be in your loan agreement and also in your guarantee. So um, you'll want to make sure that they get their hands on both of those. Um, and when I say get their hands on both of those, I mean, they should have their hands on all of the loan documents, but these are things you really want to highlight for them, you know, forward on and say, look at, please look at sections X, Y, and Z um, and confirm that these work or send us any um, feedback that you have. Um, another item is any property related representations and warranties. Of course, you wanna confirm that your client can actually make those representations and warranties. And the, the last is to the extent that there's a joint venture partner involved um, on the borrower side, you're going to want to make sure that if they have local counsel or if they have their own counsel who wants to be kind of shadow reviewing things, that they're also um, getting everything uh, to look at on their side as well. Um, the next is drafts of loan documents. Um, often, most of the time, lenders will send you subsequent drafts of loan documents redlined against their prior drafts. It's much more helpful to your client if you take the time to redline the documents against your last drafts and forward all of those onto your client as soon as you receive or as, as near in time 
as possible to when you receive those drafts from the lenders council so that they can see those changes against the draft that you turned as well. Um, and those are going to be the one, those are going to be the red lines that your client really focuses on. So to the extent that you can get those red lines to them quickly, they will definitely appreciate that. Um, the next is, again, going back to local council, we spoke about local council in the context of opinions. You're going to probably need local council in the context of some other just local provisions. Um, you'll want local council to look at the security instrument. You'll want them to look at any other state-specific provisions that are in the documents. So that's just another thing that you want to get on top of early on so that you can make sure that that third parties don't end up holding up the, the deal. Um, another item I wanted to mention, I know Christine mentioned this as well, when you're another best practice with respect to loan documents is when you're reviewing the loan documents, um, you absolutely want to make sure that you are looking at the term sheet with the loan documents. And what I find to be really helpful is to check things off as I go throughout the term sheet. And I think then you know that everything that's been negotiated, carefully negotiated in that term sheet has been correctly captured in the loan documents. Um, the next, <clears throat> excuse me, is borrower organizational and authority documents. Um, you just want to make sure you know what the lender's requirements are here. Do they require the SPE provisions from the loan agreement to be in the operate the borrower's operating agreement? Um, do they require any springing members or independent directors? Um, if so, you'll want to reach out to a third party to provide those if that's what's required. Again, early. Um, and then the last item is signature pages. I think it's a best practice really to make sure that that you're getting the signature, the signed signature pages back to the lenders council, you know, as far in advance of closing as you possibly can. Uh, you don't want the signature pages not making their way to the title company or the lenders council to be something that holds up the closing. So when you get those signature pages in from lenders council, when you get that package in, get it right to your client um, with all the instruction that they need to get them signed and back to you so that you can get them back to lenders council or whatever process you have at your own firm. Um, so you can get them back to lenders council well in advance of closing. Um, again, you just don't want that to be something that holds up the closing. So that was everything I have for best practices. I just tried to kind of check things off from start to finish. Um, but if you end up having any questions, please feel free to reach out. Thank you. Thank you so much, Oriana. Um, and we wanna thank um, our wonderful panelists today for sharing their expertise with us. Um, we especially wanna thank the BBA Real Estate Finance Subcommittee for their partnership on today's programming. Um, uh, should anyone have any questions, you can feel free to submit them in the chat. Um, but if anything wasn't covered today, uh, of course, our panelists um, uh, are happy to um, answer any questions offline. Your contact information is shown here.